Good morning. All right, and let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are again so thankful that you're our Father. We thank you for Jesus, and we ask that your Spirit will join us and lighten our minds. And, and today, you know, there's some really bad storms coming through much of the country today, and we ask that your angels will be dispatched to watch over and protect and, uh, and, and restrain these forces so, uh, so that your people can be protected. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So before we get into the lesson, I was sent this letter that I was just so happy to see and read, and I'm going to share it to you. It is to the North American Division Secretary at the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventist Church from the Southwestern Union, okay, response to the uh, an NAD memorandum on the OSHA emergency use authorization. This is what the letter says. Uh, on behalf of and with the approval of the executive officers of the Arkansas-Louisiana Con- Conference, Oklahoma Conference, Texas Conference, Texaco Conference, uh, Southwestern uh, Region Conference, Southwestern Adventist University, and the Southwestern Union, we have prepared the following statement which reflects our convictions and also we believe those of the Seventh-day Adventist members in the Southwestern Union territory. In light of prophetic understanding, we formally request that the North American Division and the Office of the General Counsel review the OSHA emergency temporary standards and consider the conflict it presents with the beliefs and practices of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We strongly believe that the mandates as prescribed by the OSHA emergency temporary standard violate the freedom of conscience and personal choice of our employees and members. Furthermore, it is our belief that the church should not be the enforcer of government policy. As we believe in the steadfast adherence to the Seventh-day Adventist Church principle of separation of church and state, the Southwestern Union and its entities request that the North American Division advocate on our behalf in opposing this federal government overreach and violation of church-state separation. The aforementioned entities are prepared to present this issue to their respective executive committees for authorization to disregard the OSHA emergency temporary standard. Collectively, we ask that the North American Division and the Office of General General counsel to provide counsel, advice, and defense against penalties for such actions. Isn't that awesome? Yes. Uh, unfortunately, you wouldn't. Uh, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. There are actually some people in the Adventist Church that are not supportive of this. I've discovered. Uh, if you haven't read my blog for this week that came out Thursday, I would encourage you to read the blog. It's entitled "Signs of the Times: The USA Speaks Like a Dragon." Anybody read it this week? Okay, in which I document uh, how 10 of our constitutional liberties have been taken away during COVID without any um, due process at all, just through executive orders and authority. And, uh, and, and how it's a, one of the signs of the times described in the book Great Controversy. I put a little quote there and another little quote about how the final movements will be rapid ones. And would you have thought that within two year time frame or less, 10 of our liberties would be removed? And they have been. It's quite profound. Uh, if you're watching us online uh, today, as you can see, we're not in our normal, normal space. Uh, we were gonna, we're going to have class. We're going to do our Q&A. Those here locally, we're going to have a potluck. But then we're going to do an afternoon uh, session at 2 o'clock. So if you're watching online, 2 o'clock Eastern time, we're going to broadcast again this afternoon. And we're going to unpack an article I found in the review uh, from 1896 entitled, The Character of the Final Conflict. And uh, it'll be, I think, an exciting discussion, so we hope you'll tune back in. So we're doing Lesson 13 in the quarterly, Present Truth in Deuteronomy, and the title is The Resurrection of Moses. And we're going to look at Sunday's lesson. We'll come back to the Sabbath lesson, but we're going to look at Sunday's lesson first. And the first paragraph says, Time and again, 
Even amid their apostasy and wilderness wanderings, God miraculously provided for the children of Israel. That is, however undeserving they were and often remained that way, God's grace flowed out to them. We too today are recipients of his grace, however much we are undeserving of it as well. After all, it wouldn't be grace if we deserved it, would it? I, I hate this wording. I always like to reword this. Uh, it, the, the aspect, it wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. I find it to be very poorly worded. Grace is an outflow of graciousness. That's what grace is, the outflow of graciousness. God is gracious. Did Jesus deserve grace when he grew in Wisdom and stature and grace with God and man. The Greek word is grace, but they translate it favor. Same word. Did he deserve it? Didn't deserve it. Deserve doesn't really apply. He grew in wisdom and favor, uh, or wisdom and grace. Okay. Uh, to the degree that the authors mean that we don't have a right to it. We didn't make it or create it or earn it as a wage. In some way. That's correct. That's absolutely correct if that's what they mean. But do sinless angels earn it? I wonder what what they would say if we said, what about Gabriel? Does Gabriel deserve God's grace? Is he deserving? Or would they say, well, he doesn't need grace. Grace is only something that that people who sin need. Uh, Sinless beings don't need grace. Then back to Jesus. (laughs) Jesus grew in wisdom and grace. He didn't need it? Hmm. Would God be less gracious to sinless angels than to sinners? Or is he still gracious? Or is it as Paul wrote, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds? So is it that, that there's some different aspect of grace or there's some different aspect of our condition that requires a greater outflow of grace. You see what I'm saying now? We need more grace, but God is just as gracious to the sinless beings. It isn't that grace isn't being poured out on all the creatures in God's creation because God is gracious and that's what he, that's what he does. It's that our sin presents a situation where God's grace is magnified or has more work to do than in those who are not in a state of sin. So I, I like, and I like, I think I would rather do instead of unmerited, if I had to use a word similar, I would use unearned. And unearned. And that would then be still true for the angels. God's grace is also unearned by them. Do you like that better? Yeah. And so when we understand that uh, God's grace is always an outflow of God's graciousness and we don't earn it, whether we're sinners or sinless, we don't earn it, it's God's grace, then it leads us to a humble attitude of thankfulness. We're so thankful that God's so gracious. Yes? Isn't God gracious to the unrighteous as well? Yes, yes. providing them life and and consequences for their sin that causes pain, which is an act of grace to lead them, hopefully, to realize that that path is a destructive path before they're, before it's too late. That's also grace. Um, so the problem with the undeserving or the unmerited language is it seems to focus the attention on us and our sins rather than on God and his character. We are undeserving because we've sinned and we're bad and we're no good and we're corrupt and we don't deserve anything good. We're worms. That's kind of what the undeserving and unmerited um, language tends to at least 
trigger in my mind, and it's the way it's been presented. And I think when we when we do the unearned aspect, it it turns our our focus back on yeah we don't we didn't earn it, but God still gives it. So think about having a child, or excuse me, a grandchild who was born HIV positive, born that way. What would your attitude be towards your grandchild? Would you do everything within your power to cure them? Would the child, and if you had a cure that you provide, would it in any way, um, would the child earn it? Do they deserve it? Why would they deserve it? We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We're undeserving. We don't deserve God's love and grace. We're undeserving. Your, your grandchild doesn't deserve your, your, your law. You see the problem with the deserving? That's right. We're children of God. But what happens if, if while they're growing up with the infection, they, they get sick and they vomit on your new carpet? Or, or they, or they're, or they're, because of their symptoms, they're in pain and they're irritable. And in their irritability, they gripe at you. Or maybe even they say a bad word to you. Or they don't listen because they're hurt or whatever. They're just, now they're, now they don't deserve any more kindness and love and cure from you, do they? You see the problem with the whole penal view? The sins that people commit, even the, the attitude of, of ugliness to God, is a manifestation of a condition with which people were born. And it is only cured through God's grace working in them. And thus Paul says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's what it is. All right, the lesson asks us to read Numbers 20, 1 through 13. So we're going to read it, and we're going to unpack some lessons. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh, or Kadesh. Uh, there, there Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water in the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring us... Uh, why did you bring the Lord's community into the desert that, that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? There is no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. What do you notice? We're going to pause there. What do you notice? They're blaming Moses. Exactly. They're blaming Moses, but who's actually been leading them to where they are? They've been, yes, think, pillar, fire by night, cloud by day, God has led them to where they are, but they blame Moses. Moses is the target of their frustration, and they accuse him of doing them harm. What strategy of Satan do we see here? Accusation. He's the accuser of the brethren. We make accusation, false accusation. How much of this do we see in the church and the world today? False accusations constantly. So what would cause these people, and just try to put yourself in their place, imagine that your local church actually has the Shekinah glory of God show up there and lead you out on a mission exercise each week where you go and help some people in the community. It's regular. The Shekinah glory is there. It's miraculous. Okay, And here, this is what's happening. The Shekinah glory, but but the people lose sight of God's glory, his presence, and instead they turn on Moses and blame him. 
What would cause them to do that? What's triggering that? What's the drive that's causing that? It's very straightforward. It's not a trick. Fear. They don't have any water. They're thirsty and they're afraid. There's a real world circumstance they can't fix. That's a threat to their health. They have a health crisis. Dehydration. And they take their eyes off of God and then they focus on their fear. What did Adam and Eve experience as soon as they sinned? They ran and hid because they were afraid. Fear is part of the infection of sin, and it's one of the things Satan exploits in manipulating people. What is it casts out fear? Love, perfect love casts it out. And what is fear when you when people experience fear? Where does the focus go? Where do we, what becomes primal and most important for our attention and concern when we get a fright, frightened and afraid? Selfish. That's it. Self. Survival. Me first. Protect. That's exactly what fear does. Look out for self. Harm others. Uh, now, Satan is described at the end of time as a roaring lion. And what's a lion's roar do? It doesn't actually harm. It causes fear. And people will either freeze, or animals freeze when they become afraid, or they flight, run, or they fight. And so fear causes people to freeze, run, or fight. Do we see our society, our churches frozen in fear? Or how many members have been, have been running or ran to their homes and hid for months? And how many others are fighting? So that's what fear does. At the end of time, Satan roars and people become afraid. It impairs fear, impairs thinking. It impairs love. It causes people to become more like God's enemy. And we are living in a worldwide pandemic of fear. Understand, the pandemic that has actually harmed more people is not a virus. It is fear. The fear, everybody has been impacted by this fear pandemic. And it's designed to to assault and destroy love in the hearts of people, to fracture society, to make us willing to surrender things, to be less capable of reasoning, to look to some voice of authority to tell us the answer so we'll feel safe. That's what it's designed to do. So what would have prevented ancient Israel from turning on Moses. They were in the desert. There was no water. There's a pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. They became afraid. They turned on Moses. But what would have stopped them or prevented them? Trust. What would have helped them maintain the trust? Faith. What would have helped them maintain the faith? Okay. Keeping before them, which means keeping their focus where? On God, keeping their focus on God and recalling all the ways God had already delivered, protected them. If you've read larger through the inspired record, their shoes weren't wearing out. They didn't have sicknesses um, uh, uh, until they rebelled. There were no scorpions and snakes coming in and biting. Um, They were getting manna provided. I mean, think of all the blessings God had been providing them. And had they been focusing on those, focusing on God, his providences, his leading, his protections, would they have been afraid? No. That's already happened once, too. Yep. 
But they didn't focus on God. Instead, they focused on the threats and the fears. And so many today are focusing on the threats, threats from a microscopic virus, threats from the government or their employer. They're focusing on the threats. And that only makes us more frightened. Rather than remembering, and uh, you know, Ellen White said, we have nothing to fear for the future, except we forget where God has led us in the past. So we must take our focus uh, off of this earth and put our focus back on, on God, recognize what's happening and uh, how God has led in the past and where he's leading now. And look, look, say, you know, Lord, in this circumstance, is there an opportunity, an opportunity for me to be a witness for you to somebody in this circumstance? Satan is trying to distract us. Okay, next, next um, verse. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. <laughs> Imagine you're in church. You've been accusing your pastor. He goes to the front of the church. He falls down and prays before the Lord, and the Shekinah shows up and begins to glow. I don't think we can really process that. We can hear it, but uh, uh, do you think you might have had, you have chill bumps run down? You think that your negative complaining and griping and whining might have gone, uh oh. <laughs> Just think about that. So what does it say though about these people that they failed to recognize that? They didn't actually say, oh, thank you, God. You went to God. God's here. He's leading. We're in good shape. Thank you, Lord. They didn't repent. They doubled down on the accusations and hostilities. What does it say? If you th- Do you remember when Jesus was being arrested? Divinity flashed through humanity. They fell down as dead men. Peter sees an opportunity, whips out the sword, cuts off an ear. Jesus tells him to put the sword away, picks up the ear, puts it back on, boom. And the people went, praise God. And they fell down on their knees to worship Jesus. No, they didn't. Despite the divinity flashing through, despite them falling down under the, it was too much for them, despite seeing there, they still arrested him, not worshipped him. Okay, both of these stories are showing the same thing. Shekinah glory, evidences of God, and what's the lesson both stories tell us? It's telling us something. What sin does to minds and hearts. It damages the ability for us to be able to discern, process, accept, apply, and follow truth. We may react to the truth like they did. They fell down, the people that came in, but they didn't have any impact on their character to want to embrace or follow the truth. That's what sin does. It damages the mind, sears the conscience, hardens the heart. And then what happens is you rationalize and you interpret it in a way, oh, he's performing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. Remember what they said? This is what happens. Continue on with the quote from, from Numbers, verse 7 and 8. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out this water. You will bring water out of the rock to, uh, for the community so they and their livestock can drink. Since God had, and we know what happened, he's going to strike the rock, right? We know that, okay. But since God had foreknowledge, and has foreknowledge, and knew Moses would strike the rock, why did God give him specific instructions to take the rod? If God would just said, leave the rod here and go out and speak to it, then Moses wouldn't have struck the rock. Oh, so so he told him to take the staff, 
Why? Knowing he was going to strike the rock anyway. Did you ever think about that? So God knew it. Told him to take a staff. Told him to speak to it. Because he knew that inside of Moses, and we'll come to this in just a minute, there was a little itty-bitty piece of frustration and irritation and anger and impatience that had been building. And he's been swallowing down for, what, 40 years? Or how long has it been going on? <laughs> and God wanted it out. And the circumstances was, were going to cause Moses to, e- to be tempted with those feelings and either surrender them to the Lord in real time at that moment. Lord, I don't be angry with these people. I'm really angry. And I want to strike that rock right now, but I'm not going to, Lord, in real time. You've ever had those real-time prayers? Okay. Or he'd give in to it, in which time then he would afterwards repent from it and be healed from it. So I, I think God told him because he knew there was, there was some of this stuff building in his heart. And then continuing on with the quote. Uh, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him, and he and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels! Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with the staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Uh, these were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. So what's the problem here? What, what went wrong? We'll come to that. Yes. Okay, good, good. Um, So was the problem here that Moses broke a rule? God gave him an instruction, like a parent tells you to go pick up your toys, and he didn't follow the instructions. Is that the problem? Yes. Perhaps he was, and, and that's another element we need to explore. Moses calls them rebels, Angry, irritated. What kind of God would he reveal if he's a representative God, if he's standing in God's place as they asked that he would? What is he revealing to them about God's attitude at that moment and character? What if Moses would have had stayed patient and gentle and just spoke to the rock? Would that have been a different witness about God's attitude when they are being negative? So Friday's lesson quotes, I think, uh, the point you were making from Patriarchs and Prophets, or doesn't quote it, it points out the the process, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 418, uh, in Friday's lesson, reads the following. More than this, Moses and Aaron had assumed power that belonged only to God. The necessity for divine interposition made the occasion one of great solemnity. And the leaders of Israel should have improved it to impress the people with reverence for God and to strengthen their faith in his power and goodness. When they angrily cried out, must we fetch you water out of this rock? They put themselves in God's place as though the power lay with themselves. Men, so, all right, everybody else can check their phones right now and put them on (laughs) do not disturb, okay? Uh, Let's see. They put themselves in God's place as though the power lay with themselves. Men possessing human frailties and passions, wearied with the continual murmurings and rebellion of this people, Moses had lost sight of his almighty helper. 
Does this remind you in any other story in the Bible? Oh, go ahead. Peter walking on the water. Thank you. That's right. Right in my notes. You've got a copy, don't you? No, no. Peter walking on the water. That's right. Peter took his eyes off the Lord, and what happened? Okay? He took his eyes off the helper, and what happened? That's exactly. And we just talked about uh, the people taking their eyes off of the glory of the Lord and focused on their problems, and they were sinking into rebellion. And how's it? That's exactly right. This is a temptation for the end of time. Linda? In both instances, Peter and this instance, God, God helped them out of their situation. I mean, he, God did provide water out, out of the rock. He could have just not. You struck the rock. That's not what I told you to do. No water's coming out. But he did do. He did make water come out, and he did lift Peter up from drowning in the water. So God actually is gracious. was gracious and rescued people from their So... The, the, Moses absolutely did say, must we bring wa- uh, fetch water out of this rock, bring water out of this rock? No question. But was it as big of an assumption of God's power, a power grab, as the quote in Patriarchs and Prophets suggests it is? Because, let's reread now, Numbers 20, verses 7 and 8. And this is God, and this is what it says in Numbers 20, verse The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron shall gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so their livestock can drink. They and their livestock can drink. It didn't say, I will bring. God didn't say, I'm going to bring water out. He tells Moses, you're going to bring water out. So if you just had the conversation with God, and God said, you're going to go do this for me. And you've been empowered now with this ability. Samson was empowered with strength. God empowered Adam and Eve with procreative abilities. All of you have had children. Are you, God is deciding when and with whom I decide to procreate. Is that God's use of power or is that your use of power? Huh? Okay, God isn't deciding that. He's given the power. So is it possible he gave the power? You will do this. And so Moses says, we'll bring the water out. Was it as big enough? Do you think at that moment Moses really thought, I've got all the power. It doesn't come from the Lord. It's me doing this. So I am not a big fan, honestly, of that particular interpretation as it's stated. I don't think it's the primary problem here. Moses was repeatedly put in God's place to represent God and exercise God's power, repeatedly through this history. So that isn't what I think is the problem. For me, the biggest problem. The bigger problem wasn't that, it was the character of God that he represented. What is the... uh, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean? Question. My opinion that people who don't believe in God, atheists or agnostic, agnostic, if they say GD, it really doesn't bother God as opposed to claiming to be a Christian and then kicking the can or doing How about if it is accurate? That's taking his name. <laughs> How about if it is accurate? 
No, no, you, this, is, this, is a, this is a great uh, divide people often have. Uh, if I say something bad about somebody that's not true, I'm, I'm doing bad. But if I say something about somebody that's bad that is true, I'm not doing bad. Did Jesus say bad things about people that were out to get him, or did he protect the reputations of his enemies? Who's the accuser of the brethren? Does the accuser mean he only accuses us of false things? Or he accuses us of the stuff we've actually done wrong? Moses was accurate when he called them rebels, so he's taking the role of the accuser of the brethren. God is not the accuser. Satan is the accuser. And so I think the bigger issue here is he stands in the position of God and he misrepresented God's character. He broke faith. You didn't show me as holy. So what's the difference between that and Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you rude and vipers, yada, yada, yada. All the, all the things he stood there and accused them of you know, in front of us. So was that an accusation or was that a diagnosis? I mean, it was true. Was it an accusation or was it a diagnosis? Yeah, so was it an accusation or was it a diagnosis? I don't think he was accusing. I think he was diagnosing. Are you speaking to the motive? Yeah. yeah, uh, So I am absolutely speaking to the motive. But but his calling them hypocrites was only speaking publicly what they were doing publicly. If you remember the writing in the sand, he knew their private sins. He didn't expose their private sins, so he spoke publicly about what they were actually doing publicly that everyone was seeing. And they were claiming that they were representing God, and this is how God would want things to act or do. And he was saying, this is not God, you're misrepresenting him, this is hypocrisy. And so that's the difference. He wasn't actually accusing, he was making it clear that their claims that God functions this way is a lie. So the problem with Moses wasn't that his diagnosis was incorrect. No, it was that he was at this point misrepresenting God. God said to speak to them, show my grace, show my kindness, and he said he showed anger, he showed frustration, he showed shortcoming, he showed that he would strike out with the, with the, with the rod, and so forth. So I think he misrepresented God's character here. And, 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 I, and taking the name of the Lord in vain, misrepresenting God, is, is not about using bad language. It is about taking the name of Christ and going out and lack, acting unchrist-like in the way you live, even if you only use Christian words. And I've been, I've been guilty of that myself, having my own shortcomings, and I've had to, just like Moses, afterwards look in the mirror and say, wow, okay, didn't see that was still there, but thank you for bringing it out, Lord, and I need to get that removed. Okay, and so can you want the, uh, with the quote from Patriarchs and Prophets? Uh, And I think this is where she goes on to actually make the point that I'm making. And without the divine strength, he had been left to mar his record by an exhibition of human weakness. The man who might have stood pure, firm, and unselfish to the close of his work had been overcome at last. God had been dishonored before the congregation of Israel when he should have been magnified and exalted. So it was the misrepresentation of God which was the really bigger issue here. Uh, Monday's lesson... First paragraph says, according to the text, there was more to Moses' sin than just one, than, than just his own attempt to take the place of God, which was bad enough. He also showed a lack of faith, which for someone like Moses would be inexcusable. After all, this is a man who from the burning bush onward had had, unlike most people, an experience with God, and yet, according to the text, Moses did not believe me. Uh, That is, Moses showed lack of faith in what the Lord had said, and as a result, 
he had failed to hollow me before the children of Israel. So, according to the text, it says, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy inside of the Israelites, you will, this is the text in Numbers, uh, you will not bring the community into the land I give them. And then the the lesson goes, uh, so you will not bring them in because you did not honor me. Um, What do you think is meant that Moses didn't trust the Lord enough to honor him? What do you think that means? Did it mean that when, when they, when the children of Israel were griping about not having water, Moses went and made a golden calf and asked the golden calf to bring water? He didn't trust the Lord enough to do it. Or did he actually go to the Lord? So what's it mean you didn't trust me enough when he's turning to the Lord? I think the issue is he didn't trust the Lord to fix the people. Oh, didn't trust him to fix the people. Interesting. Interesting. So I'm going to step in here and tell them what they really are. The Lord didn't fix it, I'm all fixing it. So could it mean that Moses felt his judgment of what was needed in the circumstance was actually better than what God had told him to do in the moment? When God, uh, when, you know, I'll just be very clear here. When God doesn't give us a specific directive on a specific action, when he doesn't, we are to use our own judgment. (laughs) Okay? Uh, But... When God does give us a very specific directive, uh, we're not supposed to overrule that directive with our own judgment. And perhaps this is what happened here. Perhaps when something like this. Moses knew what God had directed, but in the moment, when he was out there in real time, he saw the in anger and hostility and, and, uh, and thought, well, you know what? God uh, didn't really appreciate how bad that is right now. Uh, uh, they're not going to respond to a gentle voice. They need a firmer hand. And, and so I'll have to raise my voice at these people and get their attention and call them down. And I'm going to strike the rock because they need to know how serious their behavior is. Uh, and if they don't straighten up, uh, they, they might actually need a spanking. Uh, is it possible that in the circumstance he, he had a judgment call that uh, that if the people were calm and ready to listen, he'd speak quietly, but they weren't, so he, he wasn't? There's a possibility. We don't know. Yes, Russell? No. Okay. Well, I do. Yeah. I'm relating as a parent to this scenario. You know, uh, Ellen Mike says that we are, as parents, in the place of God to our children. And how many times I think that we do stuff out of our own frustration, out of anger, misrepresenting God to our children, rather than dealing with the issues of the children in a godly way. So now you're going to the second possibility. First possibility, he op- he he just uh, uses a judgment, makes a judgment call. Maybe God didn't understand the circumstances. Second possibility, though, is that emotional impulses, that or a combination of the two, that he got frustrated, he got angry, uh, his emotions took over, and he had a little slip of of the loss of self control in that moment, and his emotions overruled his better judgment, and he acted out um, a little bit. Uh, that he didn't really plan to do because it was very emotionally frustrating for him. And parents have never done that, have they? Isn't the devil always trying to get us to take our eyes off of God? Yes. The devil's sitting on the shoulder, you know, saying some things. So if we stay in a state of trust with the Lord, the Lord's got this. It's going to turn out okay. I'm not in control of the attitudes of these people. Uh, perhaps that reduces the frustration level, rather than I've got to do this. It's, okay. The fact that he fell 
Yeah. Do you think, the lesson asks the question, what had the Lord told Moses to do, but what did Moses do instead? Um, the lesson seems to focus really much on the behavior, the deed. It seems like that's where is, is that the implication that he was in trouble because he did the wrong deed? Hmm. That it's always about the action. What about David in the showbread? Had God given specific instructions, specific written instructions on who was allowed to have that showbread and who was not? Did David follow those instructions or did he not follow those instructions? But, but the, no, they were prohibited. The non-priests were prohibited. It wasn't So there was an instruction not to do it. Yeah, but it was, it was on the priest. He should have said, no, I don't have anything. <laughs> mm. But David knew there was showbread in there. That's what he went for. He went for the bread. Well, he went to the priest, and the priest offered him the bread. Okay, all right. <laughs> and David should have said, though, this is bread is not for. Okay. But was David in trouble with the Lord for doing it? Do we have any record that David needed to repent of that? No, no but the priest, all the priests, because of the incident there, were killed by Saul. Okay, and Saul is definitely acting the part of the Lord's agent. <laughs> so we, 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 we look at that and go, that is how God would want us to handle it. Or Saul was the, the king that went to the witch of Endor the king who broke faith repeatedly with God. So maybe his witness isn't the one we'd want to look at. So in each circumstance, Moses and David, the symbolic acts, actions, the acts that they took had symbolism. Okay, this is the, the striking of the rock and Moses standing for it. had symbolism, but it also had reality what's going on in their hearts. David's act of the showbread had symbolism, but it also had reality what's going on in their hearts. And both the symbolisms uh, reflected the reality of the heart condition in both people. Moses' situation... He misrepresents God and the plan of salvation as his attitude is one of anger, frustration, uh, lack of faith. It says straight there he wasn't trusting God. Uh, Thus he took action. God took action to discipline Moses afterwards with restricting going into the, 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 the promised land. And Moses, of course, repents and is ultimately saved. We'll talk about that in a minute. But David's situation, his actions beautifully represent the plan of salvation. The, the showbread represents the bread come down from heaven. I am the bread that's come down from heaven. It represents Jesus. And taking the showbread represents partaking of Jesus and having life only through Jesus. And the motive of David wasn't one of self, of, of anger or frustration. It was one of faith in God, going to the priest because he had a need, and love and concern for his men. And so there was no discipline there. So we can't look merely at the behaviors... <coughs> We have to also look at the attitudes of the heart. There was a problem with David, and, and that is he was acting on fear. He didn't reveal the whole truth, and he owned that afterwards when he told one of the priests who escaped. He said, I, I caused the death of those priests. Yeah, and there you go. Read a lot of those stories in the Old Testament about where they lay responsibilities. They lay responsibilities different than we lay responsibilities. Who, ca- who, who killed King Saul? But what does the scripture say? One place it says that. But what's it say in another place? God put him to death. Put him to death. But it says. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? 
says, says it three ways. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened his heart. His heart was hardened. Says it three ways. So some of this responsibility people take for in, 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 in the scripture is not the way we understand responsibility today. So David is taking responsibility for, for the ripple effects that happened because of it. But we would not take responsibility if you did a righteous act. And this, and this is, by the way, how I think today many people get manipulated by the devil. And I think it's actually recorded there to show us how we, in my view, shouldn't take responsibility. Um, but people get this all the time. If you don't do this, then I'm going to hurt that person, and you'll be responsible for it. No, I won't. I'm responsible for the decision I make in governance of myself, not what you do in reaction. So Saul took an action based on what David did, but David so that was my fault. If I didn't do this, he wouldn't have done that. And this type of cascading responsibility, and I see this in my patients all the time. Well, if I would have had dinner ready on time, my husband wouldn't have hit me. I was five minutes late for dinner. That's why he hit me. It's my fault. No, it actually isn't your fault. Okay? And so, yes, I think David did that, and I think that's recorded there so we, we can learn lessons that maybe we shouldn't. Yeah? Most of the time we do not have God's comment on the situation. We do in this one situation where Moses struck the rock. We don't have God's comment until much later as far as David. We don't have God's comment on, on um, Samuel killing the king, you know, hacking him to death. You know, we don't have a comment saying, oh, we'll hack. But we do have a comment when David wanted to build the temple, so God was capable of sending comments and redirections, and in this case he didn't, so that does say something as well. So, Except you don't want to build a doctrine based on science. So I'm making the case that it's not about the act. It's about the motive for the act. And I can make that case from the other side. Rahab lies. And she's in the hall of faith. We have a comment on that one. For lying. For bearing a false witness. She's in the hall of faith. But she did not bear a false witness against. She bared a false witness for her neighbor. But it was still a false witness. Against her fellow man. Against her countrymen. Yeah. Third paragraph says, in verse 9, Moses takes the rod that the Lord commanded him. Uh, so far, so good. But in verse 10, instead of speaking to the rock from the water uh, and, and having the water flow, it says he struck the rock. And then the, and then the uh, lesson says, but certainly um, this was a miracle to have the water come after striking it, but certainly not as miraculous as just speaking to it. Speaking and having the water come versus striking and having the water come. <laughs> the speaking is more miraculous than the striking. I, I, I guess they're suggesting the, the rod becomes a magic wand. The rod is a magic instrument of some kind of talisman that has power that can be wielded, I guess, is what they're trying to suggest, rather than just speak. I, I don't know what it means, but to me, that would have been pretty miraculous uh, either way. I, I'm not so sure about that. I guess Paul, when he had prayed over the claws and had the claws taken back to people and had then people were healed when they touched those claws. Remember what I'm talking about? The handkerchiefs, right? The pieces of cloth? Not nearly as miraculous if he would have just spoken it. So, or is it even more miraculous because he wasn't even there? So my perspective on that is is that that the rod of Moses had already been established as the rod of God. He parted the Red Sea with that rod. So it is a talisman. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think God wanted to to make a point, two points, 
And on this one is, it isn't about the rock. It's about who I am. I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. And so... That's right. And he was smitten once. Once. Mm-hmm. And then he wouldn't after, be smitten twice. Yep. He would be smitten twice after. So it misrepresents the symbolism. Yeah. It, yeah. He, lost that, he lost the opportunity. God had something in mind of creating a symbol, and Moses wasn't aware of that symbol he was trying to create. You know, I guess I have a hard time viewing the divide as a talisman of God, because if, if the rock was indeed even struck once, you have the symbolism of God striking Christ, and that's that's not what happened. So even even though it was struck the first time, and the symbology is okay, the the rock should only be struck once, but it wasn't struck by God; it was struck by evil humans. <laughs> so the, the striking of the rock the second time, I guess that just doesn't hold up. I guess we'd have to decide in which 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 role Moses is acting out at that point, since he is still a sinner and he'd be saved by grace. Uh, is he acting the role of the the uh, the sinful human race at that point? Yeah. So, all right, the death of Moses. Um, what do you understand about this? What's the object lessons? Reality, but the remember in Scripture we have real historical people doing real historical stuff. But much of those historical events are chosen and selected for Scripture because they also teach a larger reality. Okay, so it represents that, uh, you know, at the Transfiguration, we had Moses there representing those who died and resurrected. Okay. Um, but I'm thinking more about the, 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 the reason he died and the object lesson story here. Um, Moses is on his way to the promised land with the people. Okay. He dies and doesn't enter, along with a whole bunch of other people who died during the 40 years and didn't enter. So what is the wilderness symbolically represent in Scripture. A wilderness symbolically represents a land devoid of water. A land devoid of water. What does water represent symbolically in Scripture? Well, they can represent people in Revelation, but when the woman at the well, Jesus said, if you ask for me, I would give you living water. Okay? So water represents um, life. And life comes from Christ, which is love. That's what it actually is. It's the law of love. It's the love that comes from God. That's what the water represents. The living water that flows out to others is the love that we receive, and it flows out from us to others, and it brings life. So the wilderness represents in a place that's devoid of God's love, except as it comes from a rock. And that rock is Jesus. So on earth... Because of Adam's sin, there is no love except as it flows through, who is the connecting link between heaven and earth. And he is the conduit through which God's love flows. And there's multiple symbolisms. The, the, the ladder that the angels go up and down on is, is Jesus. But he is the, the medium, the avenue, the conduit, the link through which God's love flows into the wilderness of this earth. And we are on our way... So what does the promised land represent? It represents, and so in, in the whole theater of what's happening there, they're in a wilderness, uh, and they only have water except from the rock. We're in a wilderness without God's love, except for the rock Jesus, who is the source of the love that, that heals and transforms and brings life. And they're on their way to a promised land. We are on a journey on this planet to 
the new earth, the earth made new, heaven, but ultimately we come back here, and this is our, this is our home, which is the earth made new, the promised land. Who gets to cross over into the promised land? Who gets to go to the new earth, the real promised land? Those who have God's love restored in them. Those who drink from the water, Jesus Christ. God's all written in the heart and mind. Or, another metaphor, those who are grafted into the vine. And if you're grafted into the vine, then the water of life flows into your heart again. So all the metaphors are teaching the, the same thing. So why didn't Moses go over to the earthly promised land? Because the people needed to be taught a few things. Yes. I was going to say, most of this had nothing to do with Moses. It had to do with the people. Okay. So, I mean, if he laid down his life like Christ laid down his life willingly. So again, so why didn't he go to the promised land? The people, and not just the people living at that time, but all the people through history has read the story since that time. And the people in the universe being. Okay, need to be taught a few things. God is love. And the source of life. God is love and the source of life. God is not angry with them and he's not angry with us. God is angry when sin separates people from him. One of the most interesting things about Moses' passing is that I believe it states that he, he died in his full strength. Right? I was not dimmed nor vital force abated. So God is love and the source of life. God is not angry. Uh, God is angry at sin that separates people from the source of life. Uh, he wants to restore in us his design law, his love, reconnect us to life. And Moses' actions reveal a breakdown in that trust. And without trust, God can't pour his love into our hearts. He can't heal us. And so that's why he didn't go into the promised land, because when we break trust with God, we can't be restored to go into eternity with him. What does the resurrection of Moses reveal? Yeah. Moses' death is, is an act of grace. God. Yeah, we're going to get there. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Moses' resurrection. By resurrecting Moses, it's demonstrated that Moses did, in fact, have a healed heart. It wasn't about the it, bad deeds weren't the issue. And they don't keep us out of heaven if we made bad deeds. Unhealed hearts keep us out of heaven. We've all had bad deeds. Okay? The bad actions misrepresented uh, God's character, and God revealed Moses to Moses in that act. Something came forth into Moses' awareness. He had a little micro dot of frustration and irritation that wasn't fully removed yet uh, that needed removed. And so after Moses' mistakes uh, of allowing the anger to take control and acting out, uh, God pronounces diagnostically uh, that Moses uh, is not going over. Moses And Moses, with the therapeutic intervention, you can't go over. That brings Moses to a decision point. When God told him this, Moses had to choose. I surrender. That's okay. I trust you. I repent. I was wrong. I accept your diagnosis and your intervention and your will. Or Moses rebels. Moses protests. Moses complains. He gets angry. He begins to give a long list of all the sacrifices he's made over 40 years that, that he deserves to have one little wink-wink at a shortcoming because he's done all these good things for all this time. Moses had to choose how he's going to respond to the intervention. Moses repented. Moses accepted. And I suspect when we meet Moses in heaven and ask him about this, he's going to say something like this. Jesus is so good to me there. I really needed that. 
I didn't realize how my feelings of irritation and, and frustration over the many years of the people complaining had eroded some of my love for them and was undermining my trust in God. And, and I lost sight of the bigger picture just for a moment. And I'm so glad God didn't ignore that. I never wanted to be irritable and angry with the people, but I was. I, lo- I loved them so much, I would have actually given my life for them. But at that moment, I, I let the Lord down. I let them down. So I think we might hear something like that. There was a hand somewhere? No? Okay. So in the Sabbath lesson, I told you we were going to get there. We have about three minutes, I think. Uh, in, in the bottom paragraph, it says the following. As Ellen White expressed, Moses knew that he was to die alone. No earthly friend would be permitted to minister to him in his last hours. I wonder if he was COVID positive. Uh, There was a mystery and an awfulness about the scene before him, which uh, his heart shrank, from which his heart shrank. The severest trial was the separation from the people of his care and love. I said that tongue-in-cheek about the COVID, because of course he wasn't. But it's torment to die alone. It's cruel. I recently attended the funeral of a lovely Christian woman, someone who loved our class and attended when she was in town. And the family described the precious moments of being with her as she passed. The final moments of her thoughts and and, and how they shared that moment with her together. It was a precious time. I have other patients who have been forbidden to be with their family members dying in hospice care. Others who have patients that are in the hospital and sick and getting a surgery. And there's no family is allowed to be with them. What we have done in society... Denying families the ability, if they so freely want to be with their loved ones during these times, is not God's will. It is not God's methods. It is not the principles of heaven. It is not the outworking of love. It is the outworking of fear and selfishness, plain and simple. We don't have time for any more questions. We're about to, we're about to close. And this is the purpose of the fear. It's to destroy the love in the hearts of people and to make us feel good about doing it. We're protecting lives. It's a great lie. No, we're we're destroying lives is what we're doing. We're destroying character. We're hardening hearts. Moses' severest trial, according to this quote, was his separation from the people of his care and love. Even the godless in our society recognize the destructiveness of isolation and separation. I can't tell you the articles that I have read, the scientific journal articles, that when we are separated from our loved ones, isolation increases mental health problems and physical health problems. It damages the immune system. You are actually more susceptible to infectious diseases when you are in isolation than when you're with the people that you love and care about. Your immune system is more robust. Uh, our risk of post-surgical complications in pain meds go way down when you have loved ones with you than when you're in isolation and alone. Depression and suicide has increases when you are in isolation and alone. The amount of devastation and damage we have caused, and then we tell ourselves and our communities lies that we're doing this, that we, we would do this if we love others and we would protect others. It is such a scam and a sham. And the Adventist church, still, I'm calling, should be standing up. I'm so happy for this letter that I wrote, uh, read at the beginning of class, 
Finally, this is exactly what the church needs to be doing, standing up for the principles of God's kingdom and calling attention to them. And, and people outside the church, will, when they see this witness of godly principles, they'll say, what do these people know? It's an opportunity for evangelism. Boy, I had a whole bunch more in the, in the notes, but we're going we're gonna to go ahead and close with prayer so we can go our, our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and for your goodness and the principles you run your kingdom by. We know that only in you is there life and health and happiness. And we ask that your spirit will, will be poured out and, and take all the, the victories and truths of Christ and reproduce them in us and make us effective witnesses this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.